0: Oh, I've seen some scripts, I know the words weren't spelled right. There was hardly any commas in it at all. So I don't think that's too important.
1: Hey, you want to get on the train here or you want to ruin another take, huh?
2: It's too serene, Will. We're trying to make a movie here, not a film.
0: Man, I don't drop character
2: till I've done a DVD commentary.
1: You want to eat the writer? Be my
2: guest. That will leave you to explain how else your character is supposed to get
3: to Bremen. Welcome back to another episode of the In the Mouth of Dorkness Chatcast. I'm your host, Brad Gullickson, the mouth dork. And joining me tonight is Lisa Gullickson, wife dork. Hey, Lisa.
1: Hello. How's it going? I haven't seen you just continuously hours and hours and days and days at a time. <laughs>
3: we can't escape each other. It's but, lovely. But that's okay, because it is lovely.
1: We just finished season one of uh, Insecure, and I am shook right now.
3: She is shook, she is shook. But what's gonna get you out of that, you know, depressed, uh, emotionally heartbroken. heartbroken state, Lisa? How about a conversation with comic book legend, Stephen Arbusett?
1: It is just what the doctor ordered.
3: Yes, listeners, you have just stumbled into my new favorite episode of the ITMOD chatcast. I really can't believe that we somehow fooled uh, Mr. Bissett <laughs> into joining us in the door cave for this conversation. Uh, like, if you if you don't know who Stephen Bissett is, first uh, you need to start reading Saga of the Swamp Thing.
1: Absolutely,
3: uh, it's one of the most significant comic book works of all time. It is the comic book where people took notice outside of the usual audience. You know, it's when comics became adult material, mainstream material. Uh, it, it it's where comics grew up. And yeah. it led to things like Watchmen and the Dark Knight Returns.
1: The comics code had just dropped away, and I think that uh, Swamp Thing handles the new allowances so gracefully and expertly, and really raises the level of what a monster comic can really be about.
3: Yeah, and Steven Bissett is all about monster comics, right? Uh, Now, how did this happen? How did this happen? I have to give credit to the Cartoonist Kayfabe uh, YouTube channel. If you are not subscribed to Jim Rugg and Ed Pisker's comic book channel, then uh, you are missing out. Uh, Stephen Bissett joined them for a three hours and 20 minutes, a three hour and 30 minute conversation about his history with Swamp Thing, but also with the horror anthology Taboo and his dinosaur comic Tyrant and his years with Image and what he's doing now at the Center of Cartoon Studies. Like, it's a massive, glorious conversation, well worth your time. Uh, I listened to it in, like, two sittings, and when we got to the end of that conversation and they asked uh, Steve what he was up to, he mentioned that he had just written a book on The Brood, the David Cronenberg movie, and my mind exploded. I was like, what? Steven Bissett is writing about Cronenberg's The Brood? I gotta read that, and also, maybe I could reach out to Steve and ask him if he'd want to talk about the brood for film school rejects. And he agreed. And not only did he agree to talk to us about the brood uh, and his new book, but he also agreed to come onto to our other podcast, the comic book couples counseling podcast to talk about Swampy and Abby. So that conversation, if you want to hear that and you do, that's going to be on our other channel, the comic book couples counseling podcast in about a week.
1: Yes, impossible, magical, beautiful things are happening on both of our channels. Not to brag, but Stephen Bissett on ITMA Chatcast, Stephen Bissett on the CBCC podcast, and here in the door Cave, Brad Gullickson got Lisa Gullickson to watch. The Brood. That's
3: right. Lisa had never seen The Brood before.
1: (laughs) And it was wild. And I, I, after finishing watching that movie, I was like, that was an experience. Um, It was, like, at first I was like, why? I I found it a little campy, but at the same time, amazing performances by all of these actors. And then I was going like, why are these people giving these amazing performances? And then it gets, because I didn't, I didn't know it was a Cronenberg film. I just walked in blind, like a goose. Which
3: is a great way to to watch a movie, and no then, baggage.
1: And then we got to the end of the movie, and <laughs> I'm not going to spoil it. But I go, Brad, is this a Cronenberg film?
3: <laughs> yes, Lisa, it is a Cronenberg movie.
1: And-, and I was like, this is wild. It was an experience. I'm gonna set this on uh, on the dusty part of my mental shelf, and I'm <laughs> and I'm not. I'm just not gonna go there. Uh huh. Uh-huh. But then. Um, I was sitting on my piano bench, listening to Brad conduct this interview.
3: Right, because originally it was this was just going to be an FSR conversation, and then you know Lisa would join in on the CBCC chat, which she does. Uh, but but because Steve is such a great orator. Oratator? That's not a word. He wouldn't say something like that. (laughs) Uh, He's a great orator. Uh, The conversation went very, very long and my editor's like, we can't put this into a transcript and and publish online, so you're gonna need to do an essay format interview, which I've done, and you can go to Film School Rejects and read that right now. But then I asked Steve like, hey, this chat, we have to bring this entire chat out into the world, and he agreed to let it drop on the Itmod Chatcast channel
1: so all of that prelude <laughs> was just to say that he sold me on this movie. Yes,
3: yes, In
1: one sitting.
3: Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So
1: if you haven't seen The Brood... Uh, you should do that. Yeah, right now, because it brings a lot to the conversation. If you haven't seen The Brood, I mean, that's going to be a very different watch bringing all of this... Maybe it's gonna be better I mean, for you, I don't know. I
3: spoil the entirety of The Brood in this chat. You should know that.
1: It's impossible to... Like, you... Knowing what happens in this film mm. will not spoil mm. what is in this and, film.
3: And honestly, what uh, Steve brings to the conversation, what he brings to the brood, as it did for you, truly elevates the movie. It does. Yeah.
1: Maybe you should do a brood sandwich. Watch it. Listen to this interview. Watch the brood again.
3: I think that's, that's what I'm doing. I'm doing that. Yeah. It's a tasty sandwich. It's yum, gross yum, yum. and filled with KY jelly, but it is delicious. <laughs> uh, yeah, so do we, need, do we, is this it? Do we need to mention anything about The Brood? It's about Art Hindle and Samantha Egger, their relationships falling apart. Oliver Reed's a crazy scientist who has sequestered Samantha Egger into his ranch. And, and then things get weird. Experiments going on, or, or, may, or just maybe not experiments. Yeah, let's just leave it at that. Yeah. And uh, let's jump right into this conversation. Mr. Brissette, take it away. <laughs> Jealous.
2: I'm working with a student class that uh, no, has no more than 22 students in a classroom. Amazing. It's a two-year program, and
3: uh, I feel very lucky. And I've been doing this since 2005. Mm, man. Well, that's, I love it. That's a I good gig. It. That's a good gig. So, you know, I was listening so, to your interview with uh, Jim and Ed of Cartoonist Kayfabe, and you got to the end there, and you mentioned your brood book. And after already having my mind blown multiple times by all the stories you had told, I like I lit up. I couldn't believe that I had an opportunity to read a 700-page book from Stephen Brissett on The Brood.
2: <laughs> yep, it's
3: true. I did it. I wrote a 660-page book about The Brood. That's amazing. It's, that's just, I'm so thrilled to get my copy in the mail. Um, but I guess where I wanted to start with the brood conversation, and, and I, I felt like if, if we could just have like a 30 to 40 minute oh, conversation. Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm at your disposal. Awesome. So. And then we could take a break and then maybe come back and talk a little bit I of comics. Do, yeah, because you, you and Lisa do a podcast on comics. We do. I understand. We do. Yeah. It's a uh, comic book couples counseling podcast. So, oh, God,
2: yeah, I'm totally up for that. Yeah, Especially cool. after the brood, you and I will have so many
3: psychological chops in place <laughs> that we can
2: really take it to a whole different level,
3: right? Yes, so. indeed. Um, all right, so set the scene for me. Like, when did you see the brood? Where did you see the brood? How did you see the brood? Okay,
2: um, I mean, I uh, I, I. was... Um, in my first marriage, uh, with Marlene O'Connor, who I'm still best friends with. And my, uh, current wife, Marjorie, uh, is also friends with, uh, Marlene. Um, so Marlene and I had, uh, been together, I think at most two years, a year and a half, two years at that point, we'd only recently gotten married at that point. And, um, Marlene had a tolerance for horror movies. She didn't particularly like horror movies, but she had a tolerance for horror movies. Um, And there had been a few films that we have seen together that we both really loved around that time. So this is the period of time when uh, American Werewolf in London, uh, The Howling, uh, The Hunger, those are three movies I remember that that both of us really loved. Um, And, uh, so, my, wife, my first wife, Marlene, was adventurous about, you know, going to see uh, horror movies with me, which uh, my wife, now Marjorie, would never do. <laughs> I think the only horror movie I've actually gotten Marjorie to see was um, Pride, Prejudice, and Zombies, because oh, yeah. she's a Jane Austen fan, so, you know, that, that's kind of been... Uh, anyway, so... Um, at that time, 1980, 81, I was living in um, Grafton, Vermont, and then my Marlene and I moved to Wilmington, Vermont. Mm. And I think we were living in Wilmington. Uh, there were a few drive-ins still uh, in driving distance. And I have to say, I don't know what your and Lisa's setup is, but growing up in Vermont, uh, driving an hour, an hour and a half to see a movie was no big deal.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: I mean, that's what I've been doing all my life. You know? mm-hmm. And I found there was a drive-in across the state line in northern Massachusetts. I think it was in Deerfield, Massachusetts. And they had a double bill of Mother's Day, oh. which was a brand new movie. And the co-feature on the bottom of the bill was The Brood. And I had been trying to see The Brood since I had first read about it in Cine Fantastique, and it had never played anywhere in Vermont that I know of. Mm. Um, I uh, So I uh, convinced Marlene, yeah, we should go see this. Um, she hated, 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 hated Mother's Day. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, but because um, we had both seen... The previous David Cronenberg films she reluctantly agreed to stay for the brood and the brood was mind blowing the brood was one of the best movies I saw that year of any genre Um, and then that was it I mean seeing movies at the drive-in I know a lot of millennials and and younger folk now have a very romantic view of drive-ins but (laughs) drive-ins were never an ideal environment to see movies in and Mm -hmm. I went to drive-ins all my life Uh, mosquitoes, uh, fog could roll in, Uh, the sound where those shitty speakers you'd hang on your car windows, you (laughs) know. (laughs) I don't know how much of Oliver Reed's dialogue we missed because he was whispering it and it was, you know, the drive-in speaker kind of Mm -hmm. thing. Um, And this is before drive-ins had radio sound in our, you know, neck of New England. So it was still the old-fashioned drive-in speaker that you hooked on your car window. Um, so that's when I first saw it. It was either the end of nineteen eighty or the beginning of nineteen
3: eighty one. All right. So um, huh, huh,
2: huh. and uh and as I say it was not ideal. I mean, Mother's Day is a scrappy indie movie that I have some affection for, but it was a little bit too much of a rape revenge, you know, backwards Texas Chainsaw kind of thing sure. for, for Marlene's case. Um and, uh, and that's how we saw The Brood. And The blue the Brood just blew us both away, and I really became obsessed with trying to see it again. And then it finally came out on home video, I think from Embassy was the label, and that's when I got to actually, you know, revisit the movie, watch it under
3: much better conditions, and so mm-hmm. on. So, you know, you were aware of Cronenberg, you were looking forward to seeing the film, thanks to Cinefantastique, um... You know what I mean? Was was the initial appeal of the story before you had seen it the Cronenberg factor or the plot? Yeah, yeah.
2: Cronenberg was the first film. I'd i grown up being very adventurous about seeing movies. Um, it wasn't until I had my own license at age sixteen, like most of us, that I could really indulge. You know, my uh, appetite for seeing movies, and I was lucky enough to grow up where there were, we were an easy driving distance of six or seven drive-ins. So I was seeing, you know, five to nine movies a week Mm. at that time, because that's when drive-ins would do double and triple bills. And I was uh, voracious in my appetites. But it wasn't until I was a student at the Joe Hubert School, when I was living in Dover, New Jersey, that I saw my first Cronenberg uh, when I lived uh, in Dover and uh, spent two years going to the school. There was still a downtown neighborhood movie theater on Blackwell Street in Dover that was called the Baker Theater, and they obviously were on the distribution network of American International and New World Pictures because almost all the AIP and New World movies would play at the Baker, usually on a double bill. Mm. And I saw Rabbit. That was my
3: first Prodberg movie. I was going to ask, yeah. And um, I had heard
2: about and read about They Came From Within, but I would never had an opportunity to see it. I remember visiting um, an old uh, college friend. Before I went to Hubert School, I I went to Johnson State College for two years. And one of my uh, best friends from the Johnson State College days uh, lived in Germantown, Maryland, and I remember when I went to visit him for a couple of weeks, we drove around Washington, D.C., and I saw the poster out front of a theater for They Came From Within, Mm. and I was like, oh my god, we gotta gotta see this tonight, and of course my friends didn't want (laughs) to (laughs) go. So, Rabbit was my first Cronenberg movie, and uh, I'm watching it, and my body starts to shudder. Mm. I had this physical reaction to Rabbit, that I had never felt in my life watching a movie. It's like it was getting to me on a cellular level, mm. okay? Mm. Um, and uh, and that was my takeaway from Rabbit. You know, as a movie, as a story, I wasn't that blown away by it, but I had never been uh, impacted by any work of cinema the way Rabbit under my skin. And so I was fascinated. I mean, I love horror movies. I have since I was four years old. And when something hits me on that level, I listen. I I am not revolted by that kind of reaction. I'm like, this is important. This movie is doing something to me. I have to figure it out. Mm -hmm. And that was the beginning of my love affair with David Cronenberg right there. Um, And it wasn't the events in Rabbit. You know, it was, you, you've you all seen Rabbit, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, so it wasn't the events in Rabbit. I mean, as a movie, seeing it brand new in 1977, you know, it was kind of like George Romero's The Crazies. It was kind of um, riffing on aspects of Thy Living Dead. It, it wasn't a zombie movie, but the whole contagion mm-hmm. infection thing. I had seen I Drink Your Blood at the drive-in, so I'd already seen a rabies horror movie that I thought was fucking amazing. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Uh, no, Rabbit really got to me, and it was one of the flaws in the movie that made it work. Oh, um, Cronenberg talks about, and I go into some length in the, about this in the Brood book that he cut the scene that explains why Marilyn Chambers' mm. character Rose has that thing in her armpit. Mm,
0: mm, mm, mm.
2: And you know, it's it's explicated in the novelization of the movie Rabbit. Uh, because the scene in Cronenberg cut is still in the novel, which is when Doctor Calloyd, the plastic surgeon who saves Rose's life after the motorcycle accident, uh, does the skin graft with a new technique that allows the cells of the graft to adapt to the body's needs, and he forgets that while she's in a coma, under uh, you know because of the accident, that she's on IV feed. She's getting her nutrients and she's getting her blood transfusions through her veins. So her body adapts the um, morphogenically neutral uh, cell material that he has used to do plastic surgery on part of her body that was burned and it creates a new feeding organ
0: Hmm.
2: because that's how her body is taking nutrients while she's in a coma. And when she wakes up, She's got that little penis thing in the (laughs) vagina in her armpit (laughs) that is the only way she can draw sustenance, and that's where the the viral infection, the rabies, uh, is being transmitted from. None of this makes sense when you watch Rabbit, because (laughs) Convert cut the scene. It goes from you understand she's getting a radical new plastic surgery technique she's in a coma, she wakes up, Dr. Kelloy explains to her that, you know, it's going to take some recovery time, and then she embraces him, and he's the first victim that she feeds off of. But you can't see it. You don't know what's going on. It doesn't make any logical sense. That's the point when my body began to kind of shudder. Like, I would have chills going through me as I was watching the movie the first time. And it was like my body was reacting to what was happening on the screen, and when I say a flaw in the movie was part of what made it work, it's because just as Rose does not understand what's happening to her, there is no way any one of us in the audience could understand what was happening to her Mm. either. Mm. So it ended up being a strangely more involving narrative than it should have been. Mm. (laughs) And it also meant I wasn't reacting to you know Rose is a stalker now and she's you know preying on these people it wasn't the predatory thing I was reacting to it was that I could not make logical rational sense of what was going on in the screen and my body was really reacting to you know something inexplicable
3: going on and I loved it Mm -hmm.
2: I fell in love with it and that was
3: Love at first sight. So, you know, when I have that experience, when a movie affects me that way, uh, I, I run to the feeling, right? Like, I need to know, like, why do I feel that way? And I love the sensation of, of a movie when it can, like, physically disturb me or mentally disturb me. Um, but at the same time, so you see Rabbit and then you finally, you know, after some time, go and see The Brood in this uh, drive-in scenario— You're bringing in this experience of having Rabid physically rock your body, and that could... wait a minute now. Between the two,
2: I finally got to see Shivers Mm, under the American title, They Came From Within. Mm, mm, mm. Uh, And I got to see it in 1979. I got to see it with my close friend Rick Beach's younger brother, Peter Beach, who I was very good friends with. At that time, we lived like half a mile apart from each other, and I found out that they came from within was playing at the Twin City Drive-In in Montpelier, Barry, Vermont. The Montpelier, uh, the Barry Montpelier Road up in northern Vermont, which was a drive-in I already knew by heart because that was one of my go-to drive-ins when I was a kid. So we drove all the way from Grafton, Vermont, to the Barry Montpelier Road in northern Vermont, which is about an hour and a half drive. We, we were driving over three hours round trip to see this
0: Cronenberg movie. <laughs> mm.
2: And uh, They Came w- From Within was even better than Rabbit. You know, They Came From Within was, is, was and remains just an amazing, astonishing, mind-blowing, gut-wrenching, hilarious movie. Uh, I just think it's a masterpiece. And um, that was what I had under my belt before going to see The Brute
3: all right so i also
2: want to mention to yeah. you brad there was another movie that i had seen between the time i'd seen rabbit and had the opportunity to see the brute and that was david lynch's eraser head oh yeah yeah which i saw at midnight at the elgin cinema in new york city in the village awesome while at the end of an acid trip
0: <laughs> with a
2: friend oh my god uh, i will not reveal in the interview in case he frowns on his youth, Um, (laughs) who convinced me I was a country boy and I was never comfortable when I'd go into New York. And I would go into New York all the time because that's where the work was as a cartoonist. So I was going into New York every week, two weeks, and I would always catch one or two movies on 42nd Street. That's when 42nd Street was still like exploitation movie heaven and hell. And my friend said... All right, Steve, he was from Los Angeles. He said, I am going to take you into New York City, and we are going to take some acid. And I was like, you are crazy. And he was like, nope, I will be your guide. And I trusted this guy. And I said, okay. And it was one of the best days of my life. He took me into New York. We went to Lincoln Center. We saw the Thief of Baghdad. In Lincoln Center, in Technicolor, a newly restored print, just as The Acid was coming on. (laughs) The Thief of Baghdad is one of my three favorite movies from the time I was a kid. Then he walked us. We walked from Lincoln Center to The Village without stopping. (laughs) Amazing. And when we got to The Village, he'd already gotten us tickets to McCoy Tyner, one of my favorite jazz musicians. And we went in and we watched and listened to McCoy Tyner live. And my friend, city savvy, Los Angeles veteran that he was, he got us from the back of that club to seats on the front row with our feet up on the stage by the second set. We come out of McCoy (laughs) Tyner. He says, okay, come on. He'd already gotten us tickets to a racer And we went to a (laughs) racer Awesome. I mentioned a head to you sorry about the long setup no because a head like rabbit impacted me on an unconscious and organic level mm-hmm. i had never seen anything like a head in fact when i came out of a head i blacked out part of the movie and that had never happened to me in the lo- in my life there was something in a head and it wasn't the acid There was something in Eraserhead that was so disturbing to me that when we came out of the movie, I could not remember a chunk of the movie. Mm -hmm. So I went back, completely lucid, hadn't even had a drink, (laughs) the next week, and watched it again. And Eraserhead and Rabbit were the two movies that kind of paved the
3: way for seeing The Brood. So you bring all of that into The Brood, and yet The Brood still manages to blow your mind. Yeah, yeah, uh, The Brood ended up being,
2: I think it's Cronenberg's first masterpiece. Um, I also think The Brood, um, in a weird way, articulated things that were going on in my life and in my marriage that my first wife and I only really dealt with by the end of the 70s, by the end of the 80s, um, and I, I talk about that with her permission in The Brood book, mm. which was uh, by 1988, 89, Uh, Marlene was beginning to suffer from recovered memories of having been abused as a child. Mm. It completely threw a monkey wrench uh, into our uh, family life. We had two kids. Um, We stayed close, we got through it, um, but at the tail end of it, once she was back on her feet after much therapy and much work with um, support groups and. Uh, Being an artist, working with other uh, women artists who had also had uh, recovered memories of being abused when they were kids, um, our marriage was in shambles. I mean, there was nothing left for us. Um, And The Brood was my only lifeline during that period because at the time we were going through it, there was a lot of support books and there were many, many support networks for people going through what Marlene was going through. There was nothing for partners, wives, husbands of people that were, you know, partnered to somebody going through, uh, that Mm. there was nothing. Uh, the first book, it was a book called allies in healing. I still have it. The first book that was actually written and published for partners of, uh, people that were dealing with recovered memories and abuse did not get published until 1991. Mm. And by then, you know, we were well into the process, uh, and um, we were actually on the road to what was eventually going to be separation and um, uh, divorce, uh, which we negotiated, we mediated, we worked with therapists on. It was not an angry situation, it was just really sad. Mm. And the brood became the only artifact in the entire cultural and pop cultural landscape that dramatized so many of the emotions I was dealing with, right? Mm -hmm. And I felt like Art Hindle's character. I felt like Frank Corbeth. I was over my head. I was overwhelmed. I was just trying to do everything I could do for my family. Uh, Fortunately, Marlene was not giving birth to externalized rage babies. (laughs) (laughs)
0: Um,
2: But but the brood became... um, a film that I had seen and been blown away by that, almost a decade later, became like a lifeline. Um, And to me, that's part of the power of the horror genre. I mean, throughout my life, there's been, you know, creators that work in the genre or individual works in the horror genre that were really critical to my getting through some kind of trial or tribulation in my life. And The Brood was that Mm. during my adult years. and uh, I also go into great detail in the book. It's not that I look to horror stories or horror movies for therapeutic reasons. And I also don't look to horror for positive transform- transformative, you know, ways of dealing with these things it functions sort of on the level of, yeah, I'm dealing with something really bad right now, but that is worse.
0: Mm, mm,
2: (laughs) And The Brood was kind of like the worst case scenario imaginable for the kind of shit we were going through as a family at that time. And that becomes not so much a comfort, it's not a placebo, but it kind of gives you a way of getting a handle on your own emotional terrain. And it it
3: helped. It really helped. Yeah, you know, because Cronenberg wrote it as a response to his feelings uh, when he was going through a divorce, right? Yeah, uh, yeah, definitely. And but what's interesting is to what you're saying is, you know, the metaphor that he came up with then becomes like another connective piece of tissue between you and the film. It's not just this divorce story; it's this other, uh, you know, toxin that's that's in between the couple.
2: Right, and because it's a metaphor, it's more powerful. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I detail in my brood book uh, what was going on in Canada in particular at that time that was relevant to what we know from the public record about what was happening with David Cronenberg and uh, the the separation and divorce from his first wife. Um, And because he chose a metaphor, because he chose not to do it as a drama— it has a timelessness about it. Mm. At the time that Cronenberg was writing and then filming The Brood, right, and they filmed it between mid-November and Christmas of 1978, Canada was going through this social upheaval involving uh, alternative belief systems, uh, religious cults, um, groups like the Moonies, where, and they were also dealing with this backlash against those cults that involved deprogrammers, people that would go in and seize people out of these cults and try to deprogram them. And there was a lot of controversy around that. And the way it relates to the brood and David Cronenberg's situation at the time is his first wife was gravitating to one of these alternative uh, belief system groups. And Kornberg says, you know, it wasn't a religious cult. Uh, it wasn't a salon in California. Um, it was, you know, a, a discipline like Buddhism or something. But still, mm-hmm. it was an upsetting factor because his wife was going to move from Canada to California and take their daughter with her. Mm-hmm. And that's what Konenberg intervened in. Yeah. He went, he picked up their daughter from school. He got a court order and uh, prevented his uh, ex-wife from taking their daughter into California out of, out of Canada. Because Cronenberg chose that metaphor you refer to, Brad, mm. the movie is not fixed in time. Having it be uh, Dr. Raglan, Oliver Reed's character, psychoplasmics, you know, mm. this re- imaginary retreat in the backwoods of Canada, where he's developing psychoplasmic and working with a group of residents slash patients, it uproots the brood as a work of art, as a work of storytelling, from the specificity of Canada at the end of the 1980s, the specificity of Cronenberg's divorce and family situation, and it creates this timeless work that still speaks to us today in ways never intended. Um, by Cronenberg, and that's part of the power of it.
3: Yeah, and that to me is part of the power
2: of horror stories. You know, mm-hmm. um, that that metaphor element you referred to by making it an imaginative work of art, it has outlived Kramer versus Kramer, which was the yes. biggest movie of 1979, and it was a movie that I went and saw with my ex-wife, mm-hmm. <laughs> my soon-to-be ex-wife. Mm-hmm. And I barely
3: remember the movie, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. whereas
2: I could not forget the
3: Brood. Yeah, I've done that double feature. I've done Kramer versus Kramer and the Brood back to Same back. Yeah. And I mean, it. I mean, you're totally right. Like it, Kramer versus Kramer is so rooted in its time, and, and also because it's trying to like it, its end game is kind of this hopeful end game. Uh, it doesn't emotionally feel as powerful or as true as the brood and the pain and the heartbreak of the brood. Well, and I also
2: have to say, revisiting Kramer versus Kramer, I mean, um, and I address, and I hate to keep inserting this sentence, but I will. You please do. I address in the book (laughs) that, you know, Cronenberg has taken a lot of heat to this day where people look at the brood and say, oh, this is a misogynist work. Mm Mm-hmm. I revisited Kramer Kramer,
0: and I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah. but I think
2: that's the more misogynist work by far. I mean, Meryl Streep's character does not come off well in that movie and essentially abandons her son. Um, and it's a movie written and directed by a man <laughs> in yeah. which Dustin Hoffman is the poor, suddenly single father, blah, blah, blah. Um, I feel like The Brood really wrestles with that emotional terrain with more honesty, more candor, and I push back in the book at great length against the assessment of it being a misogynist work because uh, Nora's character, Samantha Eggers' character, is an incredibly powerful character in that film. Mm -hmm. And um, I think her character manifests um, aspects of what is involved when couples, when partners, when marriages fall apart in a way that's far more dimensional and far more resonant and way more troubling, <laughs> because, not just because of where it goes, but because of how far it pushes that envelope in a way that resonated in 1979, well for me 1980 when I, or 81 when we saw The Brute, uh, to present day, way more than anything in Kramer versus Kramer. Yeah,
3: for sure. I, I,
2: I feel like Meryl Streep's character really gets short-shrifted by the
3: script yeah. of Kramer versus Kramer. Uh, I agree with you 100% on that. H- have you seen the more recent film, uh, A Marriage Story?
2: Yeah, yeah, I have. And I think that's a really interesting, you know... Uh,
3: Uh, companion piece as well Mm -hmm. like I think that does a little bit better job than Kramer versus Kramer uh, does with that scenario Um, sure sure but we've also seen uh, you know we're
2: also at a point now you know from 1979 to the present day I mean you know we have entire networks like the Lifetime Channel (laughs) dedicated (laughs) to nothing but movies and miniseries about you know uh the breakdown of the couple, the breakdown of relationships, uh, the worst-case scenarios, stalkers, et cetera, et cetera. Um, Lifetime Channel, because it promotes itself as a women's network, tends to take uh, a uh, gender-specific side in those dramas. But I've seen a fair number of films from the Lifetime Network that, had their share of psychotic women as well. Mm-hmm. So, oh, yeah. Uh, I, I, think, I think we're dealing with such a volume of uh, cultural dialogue around those issues since 1979 um, that it's understandable to me that a straightforward drama like Kramer versus Kramer comes off very dated. Mm-hmm. But that also emphasizes for me how remarkable
3: it is that The Brood still feels and plays as a very contemporary piece of work. Yeah, definitely. Uh, okay, so take me through. It's it's time to write a book on the brood. Yeah, like where do you begin? How does that even happen? Uh, yeah. Okay, I was approached by uh, Neil Snowden,
2: who is the editor and founder of the Midnight Movie Monograph line, uh, that is uh, published under his imprint Electric Dreamhouse which is actually an umbrella um, imprint under P.S. Publications. And P.S. Publications is, a, is an independently-owned publishing house run by Peter and Nikki Crowther. Um, how did I get approached? How did the book begin? So I had contributed an essay to Neil Snowden's first book as an editor, which was a book called We Are the Martians. And it's a book about the legacy of the great... Nigel Neal, the British uh, television writer, short story writer, uh, who created the character of Quatermass. Oh yeah. Uh, so, and and for your uh, listeners or readers or however this is going to be formatted,
3: Re- this will be so. readers. Okay,
2: for your readers' benefit, Quatermass is the first uh, original uh, work of science fiction. Uh, created for television anywhere in the world that um, has stood the test of time as truly adult science fiction. And he ended up doing not one, not two, but four Quatermass miniseries um, for British television. And most of us here in America first experienced them because Hammer Films did uh, feature film adaptations of the first three Quatermass. And uh, they played here in America under the titles The Creeping Unknown... Um, Enemy from Space and Five Million Years to Earth. Those are the Quatermass films. Neil was very happy with the essay that I wrote for his Nigel Neil book, Neil being Neil Snowden, (laughs) Nigel Neil Neil being the last name of Nigel Neil. Um, And Neil reached out to me and said, Steve, I'm going to do a line of monographs dedicated to offbeat and cult films would you write a monograph about Kirk Harvey's Carnival Souls mm. because he had read somewhere that I loved Carnival Souls. And I do. And I responded in a, via email saying, "Well, Neil, I'm happy to do Carnival Souls, but I'd rather do the brood first. And I explained why. And Neil said, "Great, that perfectly fits, you know, the um, agenda of my uh, midnight movie monograph imprint. So, run with it, Steve, do The Brood, and then do Carnival of Souls. Well, I started writing The Brood. Uh, I had written about it for my blog uh, earlier in the uh, uh, 2000s, and I had expanded that blog text piece into an article that was published in a um, fanzine called Monster that I've contributed to almost every issue of. I only m- missed the first issue. So, um... That's what I expanded from. I started working with that, that article as sort of my nut, my seed. And as I expanded it, it kept growing. And I wrote to Neil a number of times saying, Neil, this is getting longer than, you know,
0: <laughs>
2: your, pay, your word count. And he, and he said, well, let me see what you got. And I sent him the draft, and he said, this is great. Don't stop. Keep going. Awesome. Um My approach to writing about pop culture is something I really, that was ingrained in me by growing up reading the writing of um, someone who passed away three years ago, a man named Bob Stewart. And Bob is spelled B-H-O-B, Stewart. And I first read Bob's work and Joe Dante Jr.'s work in the pages of a monster magazine called Castle of Frankenstein. Mm. And Bob Stewart in particular had this sort of organic approach to writing about the pop culture where Bob would start to tease out, you know, all the connections. You know, where did the, let's say I'm writing about a single film as I did with The Brood. Like, where did this come from? Who made this? Where do they come from? What are the cultural roots of this thing? What happened when it came out? Mm-hmm. How did it get made? And then what happened after it came out? Mm. What imitated it? What followed? What changes did it make in how we, you know, relate to life in, in our culture? And it's really that organic approach that Bob Stewart would take in his articles, in interviews that he did with other people, the books he wrote about um, uh, Wally Wood, one of the great American oh. cartoonists. Wally Wood was one of the artists that worked at EC Comics. Yeah. Um, And that's how I approached the brood. And I had earlier done a book uh, about my friend Rick Veach, and specifically Rick Veach's um, graphic novel, Brat Pack. Mm -hmm. I did a book called Teen Angels and New Mutants, and it was published by Black Coat Press back in 2011. Um, You can still buy it online. Um, It's a print-on-demand book, so you can buy it direct from Black Coat Press, or you can find it on Amazon or ABE Books, or wherever you prefer to shop. And um, in the book about Rick Veach and um, um, the Brat Pack, I, I know, I've known Rick Veach since 1976. We met as young cartoonists the first day we were at the Joe Kubert School. So I knew that Brat Pack emerged from Rick Veach as a person and Rick Veach as an artist. And I also knew Rick Veach's personal philosophy and his convictions and what it was in the culture and pop culture that really bothered Rick. And so what I ended up writing about in Teenagers and New Mutants wasn't just Rat Pack, but I ended up writing an entire history of American preteen and teenage pop culture and specifically how our culture feeds on youth, how we feed on preteen and teenage actors and musicians and athletes, um, how we destroy their lives, and how we just sort of take that as, you know, that's
0: that's like the cost of doing business. Mm. And I wrote
2: about that because that's what Brat Pack is about. Rick Beach's Brat Pack was about um, the sidekicks of superheroes. <laughs> like what happens to Robin when Robin gets used up? <laughs> And um, so that's the approach I took with the brood book. I didn't just want to write about the film. I wanted to figure out where did David Cronenberg get this insane story idea from? Right? Mm-hmm. Where does where does a character like uh, Samantha Eggers' character come from? And where does a character like dr raglan come from you know where does psychoplasmics come from and what about poor frank and especially their daughter played by cindy hines where does that all come from and not just where does it come from in the imagination of david Cronenberg, but what are the cultural and the pop cultural roots what led to it what predated it And how did the brood coming out in 1979 play a role in changing the cultural dialogue about uh, uh, domestic abuse, child abuse, divorce, all this stuff, right? Mm -hmm. And when you trace back where the brood came from, you go all the way back to the play Medea. Mm -hmm. Medea so hated her husband, Jason, who, you know, as a kid, that's Jason and the Argonauts, right? Yeah. Ray Re- Harryhausen, Greek mythology. <laughs> <laughs> I'll never forget the first time I saw the play Medea performed, and it's like, oh, my God, she no. killed their children, right? <laughs> so, like, oh, my God, there's the seed for the brood, Medea, right? Yeah, yeah. And yeah. And where did the brood go? Well, one of my favorite and most fucked-up horror movies of all time is possession starring oh. Isabel Ajana, yeah. right?
0: Yeah.
2: And possession, uh, w- when I revisited it, it's like, oh my God, like the whole setup in possession, including the school teacher character who's attracted to the husband, the husband's attracted to her in the midst of a marital breakup, that's right out of the brood. Mm. It's just possession takes it in another whole direction. Mm. And then I found out the writer-director of Possession, wrote Possession when he was going through a divorce. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Oh my God, that's Mm -hmm. just what happened with David Cronenberg, with The Brood. Mm -hmm. That's where it came from. So I end up tracking what are the cultural and pop-cultural precursors to The Brood Which is a pretty odd path, right? Like most people that write about the Brood, they're aware of Forbidden Planet. They think of Forbidden Planet, right? Because of the whole premise of uh, the Walter Pigeon character is projecting his deep, unconscious id, and that manifests as the id monster in Forbidden Planet. And they also make the connection because Kornberg calls the school the Krell School, and the Krell were the lost civilization who provided the technology that allowed Walter Pidgeon's character in Forbidden Planet to be able to project his thoughts and materialize his thoughts. Okay, uh, that's the easy one. But the movies I think of are Fiends Without a Face, right? The 1958 British film set in Canada in which the uh, projection of thought itself takes concrete form as these slurpy, brain-eating creatures that look like brains attached to spinal columns that crawl around like caterpillars. So good. Um, And then, because I've been reading horror stories all my life, I thought, well, you know, the real precursor to Samantha Eggers' character in The Brood is... The Executed Witch in M R. James short story, The Ash Tree. Huh. Have you ever read The Ash Tree, either of
3: you? I mean, I I've read a lot of M. R. James, but the last time I read M. R. James was like twenty years ago in college. Okay, okay. Yeah. The
2: Ash Tree is the story of a family that has had a curse leveled against it by a woman that their uh, you know, forefather had executed as a witch. Mm. And generation after generation, all the men die off with this disease that kind of uh, drains them of life, this inexplicable disease. And it turns out what it actually is is the ash tree outside of the family home is inhabited by these uh, baby heads on spider legs. They're like a parasitic arachnid that crawls into the room and like a tick, sucks the life out of the family member. And when they finally uh, destroy the ash tree, uh, they find inside not just the corpses of these weird little spider babies, but also the body of the witch. It was her externalized revenge on the family that killed her the seed for the brood. But I've read interviews with David Cronenberg since 1977, mm-hmm. since 76. Cronenberg doesn't read he says again and again. He doesn't like ghost stories. He doesn't believe in the supernatural. He is an atheist. He doesn't believe in the supernatural aspects of religion. And when he talks about what he read when he was a kid, it's not horror stories, it's science fiction. Mm-hmm. So to me, when I see those connections, it's not because David Cronenberg had read The Ash Tree and decided, oh, I'll do a modern version of that. It's because those connections are already hardwired into our collective unconsciousness. They're already hardwired into our pop culture, shared and individual. And these connections are very real, whether they directly influence a particular work in question or not. Mm. Okay.
0: Mm
2: -hmm. Um, The director of Possession, um, and I contacted Daniel Bird, who is the leading expert on uh, Zelowski, the director, writer, director of Possession. He hates Cronenberg's films, Mm. (laughs) and he claims he never saw The Brood.
0: Mm.
2: So, to me, part of the interest of doing a book like the one I've written about The Brood is I'm going to look for those connections, whether. I can track them as a direct link to the film or the creator of a given work, in this case, David Cronenberg, or not. Because Mm -hmm. if I can find those connections and they are in the past, the connections are real. But it's more fascinating to me that Cronenberg hadn't read The Ash Tree because that says to me, well, that's a cultural archetype that we
0: all have grown up with because it's just part of English language culture. Right.
2: And it has manifested in all these different ways. Mm -hmm. Um, I have no idea. I have never once seen David Cronenberg mention classical Greek theater, Medea, Aristophanes. Like I have no reason to make the direct connection that he ever saw or read Medea. But there is no doubt that Medea is the cultural archetype for a character like uh, Nora Mm. in
3: the brood. Mm. Well, you, you know, like na- narrative and story, I mean, it's a, it's a spider web. It's, you know, or it's like it infects, right? Like, so stories infect each other and they spread. And, sure. and, and, and that's what I love about stories in general. And that's what I love about reading about stories. That's why I'm excited about reading The Brood.
2: Well, And the stories aren't just the fiction pieces. I've referred you now to three or four different fiction pieces. It's also the cultural histories we carry.
0: Mm -hmm.
2: Now, I am not Canadian. I'm a Vermonter, but I grew up in Northern Vermont. And my mother's side of the family are Canadian in background. They, My mother's family, she was from a family of 12, my father was from a family of 12, but my mother's side of the family were all from Ross's Point, New York. In fact, the family farm was almost on the border of New York State and Quebec. My mother and her sisters all spoke French. In fact, whenever they wanted to talk amongst themselves and, and not have us understand what they were saying, they would switch from English to French. <laughs> <laughs> That means, and the reason I bring it up, Brad, is I grew up with a certain amount of access that a lot of my American friends don't have to Canadian culture. Mm. And part of the reason was we also got three Canadian networks using just our TV antenna and rabbit ears. We got Channel 12 out of Montreal. We got Channel 6 out of Toronto. And we got the French station, Channel 10, out of Quebec. And... I grew up watching uh, TV shows, movies, and news programs on Canadian television that helped me make sense of some of the cultural connections to the Brood. Mm-hmm. Right mm-hmm. now, we started by talking about Rabbit.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: I'll never forget when I was 15 years old, turning on the Canadian TV show, uh, TV stations, and there's that day news footage of tanks going down Rue Saint-Catherine in Montreal, that Pierre Trudeau had declared martial law in Quebec Mm. because of the secession movement, that there were a group of people in Quebec that want to secede from Canada, and Trudeau Trudeau ordered martial law. Now, I wasn't in Montreal at that time. I didn't experience it directly, but when I saw Rabbit, (laughs) how a city would break down Mm -hmm. under martial law, I was like, oh, God, this is like when I was 15. Mm -hmm. That was happening in Montreal, right? Mm -hmm.
3: Yeah.
2: (laughs) And it also means there were cultural connections that I could draw in the brood book, and I have, that American writers might not make. Mm -hmm. For instance, one of the movies that used to pop up on French-Canadian television that's essentially an unknown film outside of Canada is a 1952 film called La Petite Aurora, a-U-R- or, uh, sorry, A-U-R-O-R-E. Mm. And Aurora was the name of a little girl who was abused to death by her stepmother in rural Quebec back in the 40s. And it was a scandalous case. Everybody in, in uh, Quebec grew up knowing about what happened to little Aurora. And uh, her stepfather was let off but her stepmother was sent to prison and executed Mm. now that movie is a 90-minute black and white 1952 french language only film that i caught on french tv and i was one of those weird kids that would watch french tv i didn't understand (laughs) french but i would i would like that's where i first saw cocteau's beauty and the beast i was switching through the channels And suddenly there's a face of a werewolf on the TV screen and me being a monster kid. Oh, my God, what's this? (laughs) And the werewolf is speaking. Oh, my God, what could this even be? And he's speaking French. What the hell is this? (laughs) And then I recognized, oh, this is that photo I saw in Famous Monsters of Filmland. And I watched all of Jean Cocteau's Beauty and the Beast. Well, that's what I did with Le Le Petit Aurora. Mm. I was switching channels, and I stumbled on this movie, and it is this horror movie. Uh, it's played as a straight drama, and the soundtrack is just an organ, so it, it, it sounds like a soap opera, like a cliché of a TV soap opera, and it's this little girl being steadily abused by her stepmother. Her stepmother um, puts her hand on a wood stove. Her stepmother pulls her hair out her stepmother doesn't feed her, starts to starve her. And even though I didn't understand the language, I certainly understood the story I was being told. And that's another piece of baggage I brought to The Brood when I saw it in 1981. Mm -hmm. It's like, I understood The Brood as a chronology of Canadian films that engaged with child abuse when there was nothing like that in America. Nobody talked about child abuse specifically sexual child abuse or domestic child abuse in the 70s, that didn't really start happening until the early 80s in yeah. this country. And I track that history in the Brood book. I, I lay out for the reader when did st- states begin legislating against domestic abuse. When did the medical profession even name it? And, and that wasn't until the 60s. There was no name for this kind of abuse until the mid-60s. And it was still allowed in most schools in this country Mm -hmm. that teachers could beat students, you know, corporal punishment. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, In fact, our Supreme Court decided on behalf of the teachers when that was brought before the Supreme Court in the 1970s. So we, in the year 2020, we think, oh my God, well, didn't everybody always know about this stuff? No. In fact, The Brood was quite an unusual movie in 1979 to even be addressing the issues that it had addressed. So I I go on and on about this as long as I have to, Brad, because (laughs) in the context of The Brood, it's not just the the mythic, yeah. the archetypes that fed the brood. It's also the history of Canada. And it's also the the landmarks in the history of Canada that involved individual scandals, like what happened to this little girl, Aurora, and also cultural scandals, because Quebec and Canadian history is peppered with... Um, Hospitals for what were then called retarded children that suddenly got caught out in these scandals of the abuse that was being heaped upon the kids who were in the care of adults who were not doing what they should have been doing. There's also church scandals, uh, religious schools that it came out in the 60s, in the 70s, that uh, had been uh, abusing their students and their residents who were, uh, you know, uh, not adult age as yet so to me the brood is this really substantial meaty piece of horror fiction that not only embodies a progressive leap in the fictional and the mythical archetypes that fed it but also addressed a number of real world cultural issues that had never been dramatized in a canadian film up to that time with the notable exception of that 1952
3: *Le Petit mm. You know, Lisa and I rewatched it last night, and you know, I'd seen I'd seen this shot before, but for whatever reason, last night this shot hit me in a way that it had never hit me before. And it's where uh, the father is taking photographs of his daughter's back, and he places the Polaroids on her stuffed animals, and you get that one shot of the Polaroids on yep. the stuffed animals, and that was like a gut punch last night oh I
2: know I mean it's just astonishing and you know you think about how uh, Cronenberg sets up this narrative that is a work of fantasy you know it it takes the expression of the emotions in a in a in a a fantastic realm Um, but it's very different from the kind of approach of say Stanley Kubrick's The Shining the adaptation of the Stephen King novel in which it's of not Jack Nicholson's fault that he becomes, you know, the father who falls apart and almost kills his wife and son, it's because of the, the overlook, <laughs> you know, it's because of the hotel, Right. it's because of alcohol. When you refer to that moment in the brood, when the father is taking the Polaroids of the bruises on his daughter Candy's back and he sets the photograph against her toys just to prop them up. Oh my God, that is such a concrete expression of a parent's fear, a parent's culpability, you know, uh, of everything that's at the essence of The Brood being the movie it is, the story that it is. Um, And it's there in that simple and eloquent an image. Um, Just incredible. Now we take it for granted. I mean, how many miniseries could you and Lisa sit down and watch this weekend on (laughs) Netflix that have to do with institutional or individual abuse? There's tons of them. It's everywhere in our culture. But in 1979 nobody was talking about this shit. And if they were talking about it, they would feel that putting it in the form of a horror movie would be uh, in and of itself perverse and uh, and trivializing. And the fact of the matter is, I recognized it when I first saw it in 1981. I argue it today in a 660 page book. (laughs) The fact that The Brood is a horror movie still makes it one of the most penetrating and honest explorations of the real emotional landscape involved in that kind of, um, situation, um, in the frame of a 90 minute imaginary
3: narrative. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I guess my, uh, my final question on the brood is, or, uh, on your book, you know, you, you've gone through this quest to uh, document your, your response to the movie, uh, but but you know, The Brew's not the only film that you've written about. You you know, you've got Carnival of Souls possibly in your future. Do you think you will tackle any other film uh, with the same? I don't know what's the word—not passion or enthusiasm—but with the same intensity as you have the done same with insanity? The insanity? Yeah, same yeah,
0: yeah.
2: <laughs> well, I don't know if any publisher will ever again indulge <laughs> me doing something like this. I mean. Uh, It's very unique that an editor, Neil Snowden, and a publisher, Pete and Nicky Crowder, would indulge this kind of thing. It took them two years to finish the production on this book. I mean, this book was a a nightmare for them, just on a level of layout (laughs) and design. Um, There's over a thousand footnotes in this book. And they're integral. It's not all cabbage. I mean, they're integral to the arguments... And, and and the material I'm presenting, and they agreed. They agreed so much that they put themselves through the hell of putting this book together. I don't know if anyone's going to allow me to do it again. Will I do it again? I already am, Brad. Do you want to know which movie? Yes, yes. Okay. Uh, there's a, a, a sweet little movie that came out in 1972 called The Legend of
3: Boggy Creek. Oh, my God.
2: And I have edited... Uh, an entire book about The Legend of Boggy Creek, and I'm going to be, uh, hopefully, knock on wood, putting it out later this year as the second volume of Cryptid Cinema. I put out a book in November of 2017 that's still available called Cryptid Cinema. Uh, it's available on Amazon. I used their Create CreateSpace platform, and I was working with my very good friend Tim Paxton, who did all the book design and pulled that entire book together physically. And um, Tim is one of my editors uh, on uh, all the work that I've done for Monster, that fanzine I Mm. mentioned earlier. They've done something like almost 40 issues, if not 40 issues, of Monster. So Tim and I did Cryptid Cinema, which was this sort of loose-knit collection of essays that I'd written about different aspects of horror and monster movies that you know, fit into sort of a shotgun approach to defining what is cryptid cinema. Cryptid cinema to me is a genre nobody's ever talked about as a genre. Uh, It's not just the movies that are about Bigfoot and the Yeti and the Loch Ness Monster. It's also the movies that are about any fictional cryptid. Right. Mm -hmm. So in the narrative of King Kong, King Kong is a cryptid. Mm. It's this mysterious, vaguely reported creature that may or may not exist, and they have to get on a ship and go into the ocean to find Skull Island. And sure enough, King Kong's really there. He's a cryptid. And Godzilla is a cryptid. And all those movies about lost worlds and resurrected dinosaurs, those are all cryptids. Because in the narrative of the film, we're supposed to believe that's a real animal. Right? Mm So my interest in cryptid cinema is where did this storytelling template emerge from? There's certain tropes that happen in almost every cryptid movie, whether it's imaginary like King Kong or based on a, quote, real, unquote, cryptid, like the Mothman or Bigfoot or the Yeti. Mm. And I am interested in tracking pun intended, because tracks are one of those tropes, (laughs) where encrypted cinema comes from. Now, the movie that changed everything in encrypted cinema is The Legend of Boggy Creek. It's the first movie that presented itself as a documentary monster movie. There had never been one before that played in theaters. There had been TV specials narrated by Rod Serling, you know, about... Does the Loch Ness Monster exist? Is it really a Bigfoot? But there had never been a narrative film that was actually a documentary, and The Legend of Boggy Creek is a documentary. It tells us a lot about the people that lived in Texarkana at the end of the 60s, beginning of the 70s. That was also a monster movie, where they recreate these reported sightings, and that is fabricated material but they're, presented it in the con- they're presenting it in the context of, well, this really happened, but nobody was there with the camera, so we're going to show you what happened, okay? And that was something new in 1972, and we forget that today because now, you know, you and Lisa could go on the History Channel this weekend, and I'm willing to bet there's three or four programs about hunting for Sasquatch and looking for Bigfoot and blah 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 and it's all come from the legend of Augie Creek mm. all of it there was nothing like it before and yet there was tons like it after Mm. and um so that's the next book i'm doing and in that book i wrote the first chapter in fact i'll send you and lisa uh my um chapter so you can see the scope of what i'm laying out there yeah and um it's not just monster movies i'm tracking because the legend of boggy creek also grew out of those walt disney true life movies like you know Uh, beaver valley and jungle cat and you know all those movies narrated by rex allen (laughs) (laughs) and all those nature movies that disney and then at the end of the 60s independent filmmakers began putting out there um and that was the genius of charles pierce and um his writing partner on uh, the legend of boggy creek is they figured out and it wasn't something they concocted like oh we'll make a lot of money with this it just sort of organically happened where they kind of put together monster movies with those true life adventure nature movies And they even included those folk songs that would always, you know, Rex Allen would always sing a song in (laughs) The Legend of Cougar Country or whatever the hell the movie was. And they even emulated that. And that was such a crazy idea when they did it. But then after they did it, everyone recognized it as, oh, yeah, that's how you do a Bigfoot movie. (laughs) 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 So that's my next book. Uh, it's going to be out later this year. It's called uh, Cryptid Cinema, The Boggy Creek Bequest. And uh, I'd actually finished it two years ago, but then uh, it turned out that the daughter of Charles Pierce, Pamela Pierce Barcelou, uh, was rescuing her late father's movie. And she rescued, restored, mm. and earlier this year re-released the legend of boggy creek and she reopened it at the original two theaters that her daddy charles pierce had roadshowed the movie at before he even had a distributor okay and now she has it out on blu-ray so i postponed putting the book out because i wanted to be able also to tell pamela's story about rescuing and restoring and re-releasing her dad's movie so that's what the book covers
3: man Uh, all that all that and more Super excited for that, too. That's so crazy. Steve, thank you so much. Hey, a pleasure to
1: meet both of you. And Lisa, am I going
3: to hear
1: from you with the next uh, round of questions? Yes, you will. And uh, we'll completely dominate. Okay, I'm looking forward to it. Okay, we'll talk
3: to you soon. Talk to you soon. Oh, man. There you go, gang. How rad was that? Super rad? Yeah, super rad.
1: Wow, Brad. You asked the question and answered it, you are the best interviewer. It's my
3: style, Lisa, <laughs> it's my style. So during our introduction, Lisa, you mentioned how this conversation that we had with Stephen Bessette altered your perception of the brood. What What specifically are you referring to there?
1: I'm referring to how it brought the conversation, the cultural conversation of child abuse mm. to the fore. Right. I can't imagine, I mean, child abuse is a terrible subject and a dark thing to talk about, but art is the way we deal and the fact that this is the first movie to really address it is it's like the first movie that helped us deal
3: yeah you know like that that's that was my big takeaway as well uh, was how when people talk about the brood they often talk about how it was a metaphor for the emotional experience that david cronenberg was going through in his divorce from his first wife right mm-hmm. and Yes, that's certainly true. Uh, you know, as as Mr. Brissett talked about in this conversation, but it also opens up to the conversation of child abuse, which maybe wasn't necessarily at the forefront of Cronenberg's mind when he made the movie.
1: He also made me feel bad for not knowing shit about Canada.
3: <laughs> well, that means you're an American.
1: That's right. Yeah, uh,
3: yeah. So all time highlight. This is going up there uh, in like my wedding day. Uh, the first time I got my license, and, and and now talking to Stephen Bissett about the Brood.
1: You're that you're that excited about having a license?
3: Oh, I, I mean, I literally couldn't think of anything else. Okay, all right, <laughs> forget the license. Who really cares about that? Wedding day, uh, Steve Bissett. There you
1: go. That's more honest.
3: <laughs> that, that's more honest. Uh, okay, so next week. Like we said, uh, Mr. Bissette is going to come onto the Comic Book Couples Counseling Podcast. You can find that on all your podcast feeds, you know, Stitcher, iTunes, those places.
1: And you'll actually hear me ask questions as opposed to, like, just being weirdly referred to through the entire (laughs) interview.
3: Yeah, yeah. You get to hear a little more Lisa. Uh, but, But, like... I know what you're thinking. Hey, I'm a Swamp Thing fan. I've heard it all. I've read every uh, Stephen Bissett interview. I've read every Alan Moore interview. I've watched all three hours plus of the cartoonist kayfabe interview with uh, Stephen Bissett. But guess what? I think we really mind some original content. And, uh, you know, not to toot our own horn, Lisa, but uh, S- Steve told us that uh, we, we did just that.
1: Yeah, we did. I'm yeah. I'm not done patting myself on the back. Yeah, yeah. I'm only taking a break because my arm was tired. That's right, that's right.
3: Uh, and then, of course, back on this podcast channel, next week we are going to have Eliza Hittman and the cast of Never, Rarely, Sometimes, Always. Which
1: you may see is now streaming. It
3: is now streaming, which is why we're dropping that interview. How exciting is that?
1: Super exciting. It's a really sweet interview. I think this was a first interview for those two girl actors. And it's... It was just really fun it's and a interesting. Good time.
3: Yeah, we we did it in the uh, Legends Bar and Grill in Park City, Utah. Uh, I mean, it was a, a fully operational restaurant, so you get to hear all that clickety clack in the background. You're gonna love it.
1: But we're not eating, so if you're like a mouth sounds person, don't worry.
3: No mouth sounds. Yeah. All right, so uh, that's gonna do it for us. Don't forget to follow our other dorks: Darren Smith at the Disco Dork on Twitter and Instagram, Brian Young at the Turtle Dork and at the Turtle Dork One on Instagram, Billy Das. At Das on all social medias. And Lisa, where can our listeners find you
1: online? You can find me online, binging the rest of Insecure, at <laughs> Sidewalk Siren on Twitter, Instagram, and Letterboxd.
3: And you can find me on all social medias, at Mouthdork. And don't forget to head on over to Film School Rejects and read my article about this very interview you just listened to. I add my own BS to it. It's fun.
1: <laughs> it's called writing. It's called writing.
3: And until next time, take care.
0: Visions are worth fighting for. Why spend your life making someone else's dreams?